Well, good morning. My name is Brandon Stern, and it is a joy to be back with you, the people of God, this morning, and to open God's word together. The, smir- the sermon this morning will focus on 1 Samuel chapters 27 and 28. We'll spend most of our time, though, in chapter 28. But before we get to chapter 27, let me just quickly review what's been going on in our story in 1 Samuel so far. So God's people, the nation of Israel, had asked for a king so that they could be like all the other nations. They wanted a king who would go out before them and fight their battles. And the prophet Samuel warned God's people about choosing a king for themselves, but they refused to listen And so Saul was anointed king over Israel. And at that time, God was very clear through his prophet Samuel. Israel and their king's success was dependent on them staying faithful to the Lord. King Saul was to obey the voice of the Lord and lead the people in obedience to God. However, King Saul repeatedly failed to trust And obey the Lord. In chapters 13 and 15, we have these back to back stories of King Saul disobeying the word of the Lord. Instead of listening to the voice of his God, he allowed his fears and the voices of those around him to lead him in disobeying God's clear commands. And this results in God's judgment of Saul. In chapter 15, God says, I regret that I made Saul king. Why? Because he has turned away from following me and has not carried out my instructions. So sadly, this was Saul's problem. Instead of obeying obeying the voice of God, Saul did what he thought was best. Though he always had all kinds of excuses for why he did what he did, the simple reality was he disobeyed God's commands. God had said to do X, Saul had chosen to do why, and so for his repeated rejections of the Lord, God chose to reject Saul as king. Now, at this point in the narrative, we're introduced to a new character named David, whom God chooses to be the next king of Israel. And at first, Saul and David seemed to get along well, but eventually Saul's jealousy got the best of him, and he hated David and wanted to kill him. And so for the past several chapters, David has been on the run from King Saul. Saul and his army have been chasing David and his men and their families for years now, And David is exhausted. David is worn out. David just wants it all to end. So let's pick up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 27. Look with me at verse 1, and I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. 1 Samuel chapter 27, beginning in verse 1. David said to himself, literally, he said to his heart, one of these days... I'll be swept away by Saul. There is nothing better for me than to escape immediately to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me everywhere in Israel and I'll escape from him. Well, David's self-talk here is not great. 
At other times in his life, he strengthened his heart in God with God's promises, but here he seems completely hopeless and discouraged. The stress, the hardships of being on the run for years have caught up to him, and he is exhausted. He just wants it all to end. He's so desperate, in fact, that he's even willing to go to Israel's enemies, the Philistines, to escape from Saul. So look at verse two. So David set out with his 600 men and went over to Achish, son of Maok, the king of Gath. David and his men stayed with Achish in Gath. Each man had his family with him, and David had his two wives, Ahinoham of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. When it was reported to Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. So David's plan has worked, right? Saul has finally given up searching for him, but now David has to figure out how to live under the nose of his enemy. So look at verse five. Now David said to Achish, if I have found favor with you, let me be given a place in one of the outlying towns so I can live there. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave Ziklag to him, and it still belongs to the king of Judah today. The length of time that David stayed in Philistine territory amounted to a year and four months. But this was far from a vacation. David and his men stayed quite busy during their stay in the land of the Philistines. Verse eight, David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. From ancient times, they had been the inhabitants of the region through Shur as far as the land of Egypt. Whenever David attacked the land, he did not leave a single person alive, either man or woman, but he took flocks, herds, donkeys, camels, and clothing. Then he came back to Achish, who inquired, where did you raid today? And David replied, oh, you know, the south country of Judah, the south country of the Jeremiahites, the south country of the Kenites. David did not let a man or woman live to be brought to Gath, for he said, or they will inform on us and say, this is what David did. This was David's custom during the whole time he stayed in the Philistine territory. So here we see David is trying to have his cake and eat it too. In attacking the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, David is destroying some of Israel's enemies, which they would have appreciated. However, he would report back on what he was doing to Achish and lead Achish to believe that he was actually attacking his own people. And so verse 12 says, Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself repulsive to his people, Israel. He will be my servant forever. But when you play with fire, eventually you get burned. And in the beginning of chapter 28, we see things begin to heat up for David. Verse, chapter 28, verse one. At that time, the Philistines gathered their military units into one army to fight against Israel. Achish said to David, you know, of course, that you and your men must march out in the army with me. David replied to Achish, good, you will find out what your servant can do. So Achish said to David, very well, I will appoint you as my permanent bodyguard. Okay, think about this. David is now in an impossible situation. 
If he refuses to fight with Achish, his cover will be blown and he and his men will be killed. However, if he fights with Achish, he will have to fight against his own people, Israel, the very people he has been anointed king over. This would be political suicide for David and something he would never, ever be comfortable doing. So either way, he's doomed. He's between a rock and a hard place with no easy way out. But at this point, the narrator hits pause on the story of David. He'll pick it up again in chapter 29, but for now, he wants to leave us in suspense because there is another story that is happening that must be told, and so the scene now shifts to King Saul. King Saul is now 72 years old. He has been ruling Israel for 42 years. Saul learns that the Philistines are preparing for war, and so he gathers all of his men together, and he heads out to meet the Philistines. And in some ways, this is par for the course. Saul has spent most of his 42 years as king fighting the Philistines. But this time, something is different. So let's pick up the story in verse three. And in this verse, verse three, the narrator provides us with some really helpful context for the story he is about to tell. So look at verse three. By this time, Samuel the prophet had died. All Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his city. And Saul had removed the mediums and the spiritists from the land. So at first, these details might seem a little random, like why do we need to know this? But as we're about to see, these details are incredibly pertinent to the, narr to the narrative that we're about to read. So let's keep reading. Look at verses four through five. So the Philistines gathered and camped at Shunem. So Saul gathered all Israel and they camped at Gelboa. When Saul saw the Philistine camp, he was afraid and his heart pounded. So Saul does what any king would do. He sizes up the other army, and what he quickly realizes is things do not look good for us. It's possible that Saul even thinks that David is with the Philistines, and so in Saul's mind, possibly, his two greatest enemies, David and the Philistines, have now come together to destroy him, and he is overwhelmed with fear. And so he inquires of the Lord. Saul is desperately seeking some sort of assurance, some sort of direction for what he should do. So look at verse six. Saul inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him. In dreams or by the Urim or by the prophets. So Saul tries every method available to him to get an answer from the Lord, but he's only met by heaven's deafening silence. The sad reality is, is that Saul has spent so many years not listening to God's voice that now, when he wants to hear God's voice, the Lord refuses to answer him. He's met with heaven's silence. 
I think this is a sobering warning for us to not make a habit of ignoring God's word. Dear friends, the Bible gives us no guarantee that we can repeatedly ignore God's word and then expect God to answer us when we finally call out to him. This is why Hebrews 3, 7 through 8 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, today, if you hear his voice, don't wait until tomorrow. Today is the day to listen to God's word. But Saul has failed to do this, and now he is left with God's silence. And this only adds to Saul's fear. And so Saul does what Saul has made a habit of doing throughout his life when he is afraid. He takes matters into his own hands and disobeys the Lord. Look at verse seven. Saul then said to his servants, find me a woman who is a medium so I can go and consult her. His servants replied, there is a woman at Endor who is a medium. Wow. This is incredibly revealing of Saul's heart. In a matter of moments, he went from let's reach out to the Lord to let's reach out to a medium. It's like he tried calling heaven. Heaven didn't pick up, so he hung up and called hell. This verse is supposed to shock us. What Saul is doing is absolutely wrong, and he knows it. Remember, Saul is the one who had removed the mediums and spiritists from the land. Saul knew that God's law had forbidden his people from being a part of occultic practices. Listen to Deuteronomy 18, verses 9 through 14. God tells his people clearly and plainly, when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not imitate the detestable customs of those nations. No one among you is to sacrifice his son or daughter in the fire, practice divination, tell fortunes, interpret omens, practice sorcery, cast spells, consult a medium or a spiritist, or inquire of the dead. Everyone who does these acts is detestable to the Lord, And the Lord your God is driving out the nations before you because of these detestable acts. You, Israel, must be blameless before the Lord your God. Though these nations you are about to drive out listen to fortune tellers and diviners, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do this. God was crystal clear about this. His people were to have nothing to do with occultic practices. But why? Why is God making such a big deal about this? What is it that makes these things so bad? Well, interestingly, the Bible doesn't let us simply say, ah, it's because they're all fakes and it'll just waste your money. Sure, it's true that there are fakers out there who are really good at manipulating and preying on vulnerable people. But what we as Christians must never forget 
is that there is also evil spiritual forces that exist that are opposed to God and to his people. And so the reason God gives us for not participating in occultic practices is not because they don't work, but because they are wicked. They are a rejection of God. Let's think about this. When we turn to occultic practices, we are turning to something other than God for help, for comfort, or for guidance. We are looking to mediums or spiritists or fortune tellers or horoscopes to give us a word of reassurance, to give us direction, to let us know that our futures will be okay. And so as one author says, we walk away from the God who loves us and into the hands of people who exploit us or worse still, into the hands of demons who deceive us. This is what makes occultic practices so wicked. They are a complete rejection of God. Instead of listening to God and entrusting our futures to his wise and loving care, we take matters into our own hands and listen to fakes or demons to try to gain the help, the comfort, the guidance, the direction for our future that we so desperately want. And this is why immediately after condemning occultic practices in Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 14, the verses I just read, this is what we read in verse 15, the immediately following verse. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. What God is saying is don't listen to these wicked voices. Listen to to my voice. It's my voice that must guide you. It's my voice that you can trust for your future. It's my voice, dear people, that you must listen to and obey for your good and flourishing. And so the question before us this morning is this, how are we doing listening to the voice of our good God? Out of all the many voices in your lives, which ones talk the loudest? Which ones are you giving the most attention to? Maybe you're not tempted to consult a medium or visit a fortune teller, but there are plenty of other godless ways for our hearts to replace trust in God with trust in something else. Do you find yourself stressing over your future, desperately trying to find a way to control it through careful planning and budgeting? Do you ever feel like your Bible is an insufficient guide for your life? It's just a little too dated, doesn't have all the answers I need for today in the 21st century. And so you find yourself looking elsewhere for answers. Maybe you're looking for some extra message from God to give you the peace and the comfort or the direction that you so long for in life. What we must realize is that as Tim Chester says, the problem is not that God has not spoken to us, but that often we do not want to hear 
what God has to say. We do not want to admit our need of God, and we do not want to submit our lives to God. You see, when we do these things, we are revealing that what we are wanting most in that moment is not really God, but something God can give us. We are treating God as if he is a means to an end. He has become our way of getting what matters most to our hearts, things like comfort, guidance, and reassurance of the future. And so when God seems silent, we can be so quick to turn to other means to get what our hearts most desperately long for. And this is what King Saul did, and this is what all of our hearts are prone to do as well. Before we continue with the story, though, I think there is another question that we should ask. How did Saul go from being someone who removed the mediums and spiritists from the land to someone who says, find me a woman who is a medium so I can go and consult her? Well, I think the lyrics of Casting Crown song Slow Fade help answer this question. They write, it's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white have turned to gray and thoughts invade, choices made, a price will be paid when you give yourself away. People never crumble in a day. Saul did not just wake up one day and decide to consult a medium. For years, Saul had made a practice of disobeying God's commands. For years, Saul had feared other people more than his God. What is happening now is the result of countless compromises along the way. You see, Saul has not trained himself in obedience to God's word, and so it was oh so easy now in his moment of fear and desperation to disobey his God. And it's here that we learn a very, very important lesson about sin. Sin is never content with just one compromise. Sin always demands more and more and more from you. Disobeying God has a snowball effect in our lives. One little sin turns into another sin and into another sin until we become ensnared and we've crossed lines that at one point we thought we would never, ever cross. Think about it. Very rarely does someone set out with the goal to destroy their marriage through adultery. It happens slowly. Innocent conversations with someone of the opposite sex become a little less innocent. Then emotions begin to get involved. And sooner or later, you are crossing lines that at one point you never thought possible. It's a slow fade when you give yourself away. Saul's problem was that he had made a habit of disobeying God. And so now, all these many years later, he is crossing lines that his younger self would have never thought possible. 
And this is the seriousness of sin. It has this gravitational pull toward death and destruction. So let's reflect on this in our own lives. Where in your life are you maybe excusing your current disobedience to God? That's not that big of a deal. Where in your life are you doing what God says not to do or not doing what God says to do? Where has obedience to God's commands become too inconvenient or too difficult for you? Are you making ethical compromises at work, maybe fudging the numbers or the truth just a bit to make yourself look better? Are you participating in conversations that you know you shouldn't just so that you can fit in and feel accepted? Are you doing things sexually that God in his wisdom and love for you has forbidden? Where are you feeding the monster that wants to destroy you? Where are you deceiving yourself into thinking that the compromises you are making today won't make greater compromises tomorrow all the more easier for you? Dear church, hear God's warning to you today. Your sin will never stay content where it is. It will always want more. It will continue to wrap its tentacles around you and pull you farther and farther in. So do not play games with your sin. Do not befriend it or ignore it or excuse it. Fight against it. Make war with it and commit by God's grace to submitting every aspect of your life to the good and wise and loving authority of God's word. This is what Saul has failed to do. So let's pick up the story now in verse eight and see where a life of repeated, consistent disobedience to God leads. Verse eight of chapter 28. Saul disguised himself by putting on different clothes and set out with two of his men. They came to the woman at night and Saul said, consult a spirit for me. Bring up for me the one I tell you. But the woman said to him, whoa, you surely know what Saul has done, how he has cast, cut off the mediums and the spiritists from the land. Why are you setting a trap for me to get me killed? Now you would think a statement like this would have pricked Saul's conscience, but Saul is too far gone at this point. Listen to his shocking, blasphemous reply. Then Saul swore to her by the Lord, as surely as the Lord lives, no punishment will come to you for this. Saul has such little regard for the Lord that he flippantly uses God's holy name to assure a medium that she won't be punished for breaking God's law. It's really hard to imagine how Saul could have any less regard for God. But the medium is satisfied with Saul's answer, and so she asks in verse 11, who is it that you want me to bring up for you? Saul answers, bring up Samuel for me. Verse 12, 
When the woman saw Samuel, she screamed. And then she asked Saul, why did you deceive me? You are Saul. But the king said to her, don't be afraid. What do you see? Well, I see a spirit form coming up out of the earth, the woman answered. Then Saul asked her, what does he look like? An old man is coming up, she replied. He's wearing a robe. Then Saul knew it was Samuel, and he knelt low with his face to the ground, and he paid homage. Let's just recognize for a quick second that we can bring a lot of questions to this text that God just doesn't answer for us. We don't know if the medium normally makes contact with the dead or if this was a unique and startling experience for her, hence her scream. But what we do know and what the narrator wants us to focus on is that Samuel has come back from the dead to deliver God's word of judgment to Saul one last time. God's word is the authority even in a witch's cave. Look at verse 15. Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Samuel asked Saul. Well, I'm in serious trouble, replied Saul. You see the Philistines, they're fighting against me and God has turned away from me. He doesn't even answer me anymore, either through the prophets or in dreams. So I've called on you to tell me what I should do. Samuel answered, since the Lord has turned away from you and has become your enemy, why are you asking me? The Lord has done exactly what he said through me. The Lord has torn the kingship out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Saul, you did not obey the Lord and you did not carry out his burning anger against Amalek. Therefore, for that reason, the Lord has done this to you today. And the Lord will also hand Israel over to the Philistines along with you. Tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me, and the Lord will hand Israel's army over to the Philistines. This is a terrifying word of judgment, but it is one that Saul has heard before. Samuel is clear about this. The Lord has done exactly what he said through me. God had been clear throughout Saul's life that his disobedience had cost him the kingdom. Because of Saul's failure to obey the voice of his God, the Lord has turned away from him and Samuel even says, has become your enemy. Saul is now abandoned by God and facing the terrifying prospect of his coming death and judgment for his sin. Within 24 hours, Saul and his sons will be dead and the army of Israel routed by the Philistines. And this news is just too much for Saul to bear. Look at verse 20. Immediately, Saul fell flat on the ground. He was terrified by Samuel's words and was also weak because he had not eaten anything all day and all night. The woman came over to Saul and she saw that he was terrified and said to him, look, your servant has obeyed you. I took my life in my hands and did what you told me to do. Now please listen to your servant. Let me set some food in front of you. Eat 
and it will give you strength so you can go on your way. But he refused, saying, I won't eat. But when his servants and the woman urged him, he listened to them. He got up off the ground, and he sat on the bed. The woman had a fattened calf at her house, and she quickly slaughtered it. She also took flour, kneaded it, and baked unleavened bread. She served it to Saul and his servants, and they ate. Afterward, they got up and left that night. Notice the sad irony here at the end of Saul's life. Having failed time and time again to listen to the voice of God throughout his life, Saul is now listening to the voice of a medium. It's a tragic end to a tragic life. His disobedience to God has led to God's abandonment of him and the terrifying, soul-crushing expectation of God's judgment. This story, friends, paints a vivid and terrifying picture of the consequences for disobedience to God. And our hearts go out to Saul, don't they? As we see him, just picture him there, sitting on the medium's bed, just hunched over, terrified, exhausted, without hope, without God. It's a miserable, pitiable sight. And yet, as we contemplate Saul's tragic end, we are invited to consider our own futures as well. Where are our lives heading? What will happen when it comes time for us to die? The Bible is clear about these things. All of us, without exception, have disobeyed God and are justly deserving of his judgment. We have all failed to love God and love others as we should. So the default future awaiting every single one of us is the same as Saul's. To be abandoned by God, fearful and alone, facing God's crushing judgment for our sin. But, but the good news of Christianity is that that doesn't have to be your future. Because about a thousand years after King Saul ate his last meal in a medium's house, there was another king of Israel who ate his last meal on the night before his death. However, this king was not dying for his own disobedience to God, but this king was preparing to die for the disobedience of all his people. And when it came time for this king to die, like King Saul, he too screamed into the darkness, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And the Lord did not answer him. And though this king had never once disobeyed God, he died fearful and alone under the crushing weight of God's judgment. And this king did this so that you and I would never have to face the terror of God's abandonment and judgment for our sin. 
You see, in dying alone and forsaken by God and under God's judgment, King Jesus satisfied divine justice. He died in our place and for our sins, and then he rose from the dead three days later so that anyone who turns from their sin and trusts in him can be saved and never have to know the terror of God's abandonment, but can know the comfort of God's love, the peace of God's forgiveness, and the assurance of God's promise to never, ever leave us or forsake us. So if you are here today and you have not confessed your disobedience to God and asked him to save you, I want to plead with you to do that now. Do not let Saul's tragic end become your tragic end. Call out to God to save you. Confess your sin and your disobedience to him and ask him to forgive you. God is so willing and so eager and so able to forgive anyone, anyone who turns from their sins and trusts in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those of you who are trusting in Jesus Christ, may a text like this one serve as a gracious reminder of what our Savior has rescued us from. Instead of dying for our sins without hope and without God, we have been adopted into God's very own family and given the sure and certain hope of eternal life with him in the new creation. And so, because we are God's dearly loved children, let us listen and obey our Father's voice of grace and wisdom. Let us not go looking elsewhere for reassurance or for comfort or for guidance in our times of uncertainty, but let us, as dearly loved children, rest confidently and contentedly in his promises, loving, trusting, treasuring the Savior who died in our place and for our sins. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, thank you for providing your very own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be our substitute. To come to this earth and become a man, to live a perfect life of obedience to you, something we could never do, and then willingly die, forsaken and alone, under your just judgment for our sins. But thank you that he didn't stay dead, but having satisfied divine wrath, he rose victorious three days later, never ever to die again. And now anyone, absolutely anyone, who turns from their sin and trusts in him can be saved and never have to bear the awful, terrifying consequences for their sin. Your grace and your mercy truly are amazing. So help us now to live as obedient children, trusting and listening to your voice. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.